It had been a miserable trip. We had gone down to Chico State University so that we could participate in the debate tournament there. And if you ever drive from California on the west coast uh, to northwest part of Washington State, and you take those winding roads that take you from the wooded, beautiful campus of Chico State. You're driving on Highway 1 up the coast of California into Oregon and, and then eventually into Washington. Those winding roads make you not feel so good. Especially when you had the same greasy potatoes for breakfast as I had had. So it was not a good trip to begin with. But I was sitting in the front seat uh, along with one of my debate colleagues, and we were talking about how when we got back to campus, uh, we were going to need to get into the communication building to retrieve some things, and, and really not so much myself, but the person I was talking with. I can't remember who it was or what it was that they needed, but they really desperately needed back in the communication building so they could get whatever it was they needed. I think the keys to their apartment or something. And all the while, Ted, that miserable student, teacher or student assistant, graduate student, just kept driving, not saying a word, not letting on to the fact that he did not have keys to that building. For six hours, as we drove, he said nothing. He did not have compassion. In fact, when we finally arrived and we asked, are you going to let us into the building? He said, I, didn't, I don't have keys. We said, didn't you hear us talking about it? He goes, yeah, you never asked me if I had keys. And he laughed and walked away. He did not have compassion. Last week, as we started talking about Romans chapter 8, as Paul tells the Christians in Rome, he says, look, I want you to understand that, that God had a plan from the beginning. He had a purpose from the beginning. And a part of that plan, part of that purpose, is that we would be created in the image of Christ. Paul says elsewhere, Colossians chapter 3, that we are created in the image of him who created you. That is to say, the image of Christ. So the question becomes for us, what does it mean to be created in the image of Christ? A few verses later, there in Colossians chapter 3, Paul gives us some distinctive qualities, uh, I believe, of Christ that we could say are the image of Christ. And so we continue that study this morning by beginning to think about what is the image? What is the person of Christ? What is it that when Paul says people ought to look at us as in a mirror, they see Christ? What are those qualities? One of those qualities is compassion. This morning we are going to think about how Jesus exercised compassion. And there are a number of scriptures in the New Testament that we could look at that talk about the compassion of Christ. I want us this morning to look at just three of those examples and think about the lessons of compassion that they show for us. Let's begin by looking in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, we don't see Jesus necessarily exercise the type of compassion maybe that we have in mind, but Jesus himself begins to talk about compassion. Notice Matthew chapter 9. We'll pick up in verse 
10. Now we'll pick up in verse 9, rather. Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. It says, And Jesus went from there, and, and he saw a man named Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he said, It is not those who are, who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Put yourself in the context of what's happening. Many, as we talked about in our Bible class this morning, were waiting for this Messiah who would come and reign on David's throne. And there are many religious folks, people that were really into following Judaism in one of its many forms that existed at that time. And they were looking for this Messiah waiting for him to establish his throne. And among those were some of the Jewish leaders, and they saw themselves, I suppose, in some great capacity. And among those were the Pharisees and the scribes who knew the prophets well. And yet here's Jesus, and he's not matching their idea of what the Messiah is coming to do. He's eating with tax collectors and sinners. Instead of with them. Instead of making ways with the Jewish leadership, he's eating with sinners and tax collectors. And so these Pharisees have a conversation with Jesus' disciples. Why, why are you following this guy? Why is your teacher eating with these folks over here? And within that context, Jesus says, I want you to go and learn what this passage means. And he quotes Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6. I desire, according to Matthew's account, New American Standard, compassion, not sacrifice. And so Jesus holds up this value of compassion. How is this tied to compassion? We might wonder. You might really be confused if you look at some different translations on this passage. And some translations say loyalty instead of compassion. And if you go back to Hosea chapter 6 and you look at the New American Standard and you look at the English Standard uh, translation, you look at the, the uh, Holmes Christian Bible translation, and you look at some different translations, they say loyalty. And some translations do say compassion. Some translations, translations say mercy. And you scratch your head and you think, well, what is this passage really saying? And what does Jesus mean by this? So I want you to turn over to Hosea chapter 6. And this is one of those passages that when you begin to unpack it, you really understand the depth of Jesus' teaching. 
Let's go back to Hosea chapter 6. And notice what Jesus is doing here and what Hosea is doing here. Now, keep in mind the story of Hosea. Most of you have heard the story of Hosea, I suspect. Remember, Hosea was the prophet that God said, I want you to go and marry this gal, Gomer. She's a great lady. She'll escort anyone. Understand what I'm saying for little ears. Wouldn't that be a great message to get from God? I want you to go marry a professional. God's point in that is saying that's what it's like to be a God for the people of Israel. Always unfaithful. Always running away. Always doing something other than my will. Your marriage, Hosea, gets to become an analogy. Not a very good thing for Hosea. But that's the context of Hosea chapter 6. So we come over to Hosea chapter 6, and really we're going to back up to understand the context just a little bit. Look at Hosea chapter 5, verse 12. This is God speaking to the people of Israel, the northern kingdom. He says, Therefore I am a moth to Ephraim, and like rottenness to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness in Judah, his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria, and sent to the king uh, Jerob, but he is unable to heal you or to cure you of your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear you to pieces and go away. I will carry you away, and there will be none to deliver. I will go away and return to my place until... They acknowledge their guilt and seek my face. In their affliction, they were earnestly seeking. And then the context continues down into chapter 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord. For he has turned, torn us, and he will heal us. He has wounded us, but his, he will bandage us. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day. Oh, doesn't that give you chills? That we, may know, that we may live before him. So let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as his dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the spring rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah, for your loyalty? There's that word again is like a morning cloud, like the dew which goes away early. Therefore, I will hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loyalty, the American Standard Translation, rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt offerings. But like Adam... They have transgressed my covenant. Therefore, they have dealt treacherously against me. And we just read a lot. But when you look at verse 4, Hosea chapter 6, and you look again at Hosea chapter 6 and verse 6, where that word, the New American Standard, translates loyalty. That is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed. We sing chesed all the time. We do. Every time we sing the song, The Steadfast Love of the Lord, 
says chesed, and one of its definitions is a steadfast love. A steadfast love. And that's why the New American Standard is translating it loyalty. It's the idea that you and I had an agreement. You and I had a covenant. You and I had a deal. And you broke it again and again. And I have every right to execute the terms of that contract, the terms of that deal. But my loving kindness, as it sometimes is translated, my loyalty to you and to the covenant are so great that rather than executing the terms of that contract, I'm going to give you mercy. I'm going to give you love. When we sing the steadfast love of the Lord, we're singing chesed in Hebrew. The idea of loyalty that is here in Hosea chapter 6 deals with the loyalty of Israel. That is to say, God is chastising them for not having loyalty towards him, not having loyalty to that covenant. And yet he says in verse 6, I desire your loyalty, your mercy. And maybe he's making a play on words here in Hosea chapter 6 to say, I desire loving kindness, steadfast love, mercy, instead of sacrifice. That's why you're still around. You see, the theme of Hosea chapter 5 and chapter 6 and chapter 7 is the idea that God is warning Israel over and over again to return to him and to be faithful to him. And here, even in Hosea chapter 6, he says, I sent the prophets to hew you, to warn you, to be faithful to me. And you didn't listen to their message. And bad things are going to happen to you because you have separated yourself from our relationship. But in the end, how can I throw you out? My steadfast love is always there. And so we can have hesed towards one another. And so as we come back to Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, and we see that as Matthew writes, he uses the Greek word helios, or elias, which means mercy or compassion. It's not mercy or compassion in the sense of, oh, look what happened, something bad happened, I feel so bad for you. It's the idea of mercy that says, I have every right to execute judgment on you, but instead I'm going to withhold that because of my loving kindness. And Jesus quotes Hosea chapter 6 to say, this is what God wants. Rather than sacrifice, in our interactions with one another, he wants us to have mercy towards one another. And more specifically, Jesus says, the reason I'm eating with sinners and tax collectors is because my, my purpose and my mission was to come and to provide mercy. You deserve it, buddy. You deserve death. 
You deserve some very bad things to happen in your life. But I'm giving mercy. And the Pharisees were looking at Jesus eating with these tax collectors and these sinners and, and saying, how can he do that? And Jesus' answer is, have you not read? I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. That is to say, if we were to continue reading on in Hosea, well, the Israelites were great at going through the motions of giving sacrifices whenever they wanted good crops, thinking that's what would get them good crops. But their heart was nowhere near God. He says, I don't want your sacrifice. I want your loyalty. I want you to remain in the covenant. But you see, there's a double meaning here, perhaps, in that Jesus came to be that sacrifice by which folks would find that mercy that had taken place. So as we come back here to Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13 following, Jesus says, For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He's making a logical conclusion, grammatically in the Greek text, by saying, go and find out what this message is that Hosea was speaking about. I came to fulfill that by calling sinners, just like Hosea's purpose was to go to Israel and say, come out, reason together, let us return to the Lord. Let us find his mercy. That's why I'm eating with sinners and tax collectors. When we think about compassion as Christians and as the church today, one thing we need to stop and think about is that God's compassion ought to propel us to go to sinners and tax collectors not for the purpose of joining them in sin or for enabling them in sin, but just as the prophets went to Israel to call them out of sin and return to that covenant with God, that compassion. There is other forms of compassion that we see in Jesus. One of the strangest scenes, perhaps, which points to Jesus' compassion is John chapter 2. As we look at John chapter 2, we're never going to see the term compassion used, but I think there's an interesting illustration of compassion. And as we look at this, let me remind you of what some dif uh, dictionaries define compassion as being. Merriam-Webster's defines compassion as the sympathetic consciousness of others' distress, together with a desire to alleviate it. Dictionary.com says it's a feeling of deep sympathy and sorrow for another who is stricken by misfortune, accompanied by a strong desire to alleviate the suffering. Finally, Oxford defines it as a sympathetic pity and concern for the suffering or misfortunes of others. So compassion has that idea of I see that someone else has some sort of suffering, some sort of misfortune. And it doesn't say the source of the misfortune, just that we acknowledge that that misfortune exists and we have a desire to take away that misfortune or the suffering caused by that misfortune. When we come to John chapter 2, I think we see Jesus doing this. Notice what happens in the story, John chapter 2. 
John chapter 2, verse 1 says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And so we have this wedding scene, and you know the story very well. They run out of wine. Verse 3 says, The wine ran out, and the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now, is that a big deal? I suppose so. Have you ever been to a wedding and they ran out of, ran out of food, halfway through? What do you think? You would never say it in front of the bride and groom. But as soon as you get in the car, that's what you're talking about, right? They ran out of nuts. All they had left were those little mints that nobody likes. Right? You're saying it. I know you are. And so we have that scene going on here. And Jesus' mom comes to her. Mary comes to Jesus and says, they've, they've, they have no wine. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to her, woman... What does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, none of us would, I dare say, ever dream of talking to our mother saying, hey, woman, what's that got to do with me, right? But remember, in the first century, that terminology of, of addressing your mother as woman was commonplace. It was not disrespectful. It would be equivalent to us saying ma'am today. Okay, He's not being disrespectful by saying woman in this sense, in this way. But he does say, what does that have to do with us? My hour's not yet come. Jesus is acknowledging to his mom, Mom, this doesn't have anything to do with my ministry. This doesn't have anything to do with, with my purpose. He knows what she's asking him to do. What does this have to do with us? But there's suffering. There's misfortune. Whatever the connection is, and we have no idea what the connection is between Mary and whoever is getting married. But apparently they know Mary, and apparently they know Jesus, and they know Jesus well enough that they said, you can bring your 12 buddies with you. All 12 weren't there yet. Okay? But James and John, uh, Nathaniel, I believe, were there. Philip was there. Okay, so at least four guys. Right? You, can, you, can, you can bring your little band of friends with you. I'm sure they didn't say it quite like that. But they say, yeah, bring them, bring them. Come to the wedding. Mary knows what Jesus can do. And so in verse 5, she tells the, the head servant, she says, whatever he says to you, do it. And so you know what happens. Jesus goes ahead and he tells the head servant, those containers over there that are used for the ritual washing that we Jews do, go ahead and take the water and fill those things with water. And then draw out of that. And the wine is better, the best wine, than what the headmaster, the head servant, had ever tasted before. And he takes it back and he says, everyone saves the best for or the, serves the best first and then the lousy stuff once everyone's already intoxicated and they don't know any better. But you gave the best stuff out last. Jesus was alleviating something. Maybe it was out of respect of his mom, but maybe it was out of recognition of the fact that here are people at the wedding who, who are maybe embarrassed. They've, won out of, they've ran out of wine. Maybe they ran out of wine because they're poor. They didn't have money to provide everything. I don't know. There's no way for us to know. But to me, the story indicates a simple, basic compassion that we have for situations that people get themselves into. There's no reason for Jesus to do this. It had nothing to do with him. It had nothing to do with his ministry and his service. And yet John says this is the first time that Jesus does in front of his disciples. It ends up being a recorded miracle of Jesus. But it wasn't what Jesus intended. 
Jesus wasn't intending to, for that necessarily to be his first sign. And yet, he was propelled to do it. A form of compassion. Just everyday kindness for someone else as you look at their misfortune. However light it was. Kimberly and I were talking about the Grammys or the Oscars this past week. Uh, and we were kind of making fun of them a little bit because it made such a big deal about the fact that at the very end they messed up the ballot for the, for the best picture. And we thought, you know, nobody cares. We're talking about movies. We're talking about actors. Uh, this has no bearing on our lives. This has no bearing on the direction of the country. This has no bearing on the economy. It's just people awarding themselves awards. And yet it's all over the news and it's a big deal. There are things that happen around us that, to us, are not big deals. But to the person that it's happening to, sometimes it's a big deal. Sometimes it's a big deal. When we come over to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 7, we see another incident, and this time it is a big deal. And I want you to notice how Jesus uh, exemplifies compassion uh, in, in the Gospel of of Luke, chapter 7, verse 13. Uh, we'll back up a little bit from there. We'll start in verse 11. Luke, chapter 7, verse 11. So soon afterwards, he went to a city called Nain, and his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large crowd. And as he approached the gates of the city, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a sizable crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. And the bearers came to a halt. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. The dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. Fear gripped them all, and they began to glorify God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And the report concerning him went out all over Judea and all the surrounding districts. Eighteen times in the New Testament, the word compassion is found. Some of those, about half, are attributed to Jesus. Some of them are parallel passages. Jesus felt compassion for the crowds when they had no teacher. Jesus had compassion for the crowds when they had no food after they'd been listening to him preach all day. But here is a simple story of Jesus healing someone. And what's unique about this story is this wasn't someone who was coming to Jesus because they heard that he could heal and they were asking him to heal them or to heal their child or to heal someone in their family. What's unique about this story is Jesus seems to simply be traveling and he observes a scene unconnected with himself. And he decides to insert himself into the situation. And the situation is here is this woman who has lost her son, her only son. And she happens to also be a widow. Now, as you and I read this story, we think, oh, you know, that's sad. She doesn't have anyone. All her family's gone. Here's a bigger deal. No Social Security. No Medicare. 
no church funds. In the first century, if you were a woman, you had no legal standing. You had no place to get a job. You had nothing if your family was gone. This woman was about to be completely destitute and forced to beg. Her husband was dead. Her only son, whose role it would have been to care for his mother, was now dead. We think, oh, how horrible it is that her family is dead and gone, and we feel bad for her. We can, we, we can appreciate the emotion of the fact that her son and her husband are, are gone, but for her, it was that and then some. Of not being able to care for herself or have anyone else to care for her. And Jesus saw her misfortune. And he said, I'm going to do something about that. And he went out of his way. He wasn't doing this because he wanted the crowds to see him do a miracle and use it as an opportunity to preach, as we see him do with so many of his other miracles. It wasn't the fact that Jesus was there with the large crowds that he'd been teaching all day and he wanted to take care of them. It was none of those things. It was Jesus being moved by this woman's plight and wanting to help her. And so he goes over to the coffin, puts his hand on the coffin. We don't even know if the woman believes in Jesus as the Messiah. He says, young man, rise up. That's compassion. As we look at these three scenarios, these three stories that we've talked about, and we think about what it is to have the image of compassion in our lives as Christians today, there are different lessons that each of these provide us. And we need to contain these in our life. The first is we need to recognize that part of compassion is understanding that people find themselves in misfortune, spiritually and physically at times. And we could take the approach that says, you got yourself into this place, now deal with it. You made your bed, now sleep in it. And as we look at the story of Hosea, certainly in a way God was doing that. God does not want you to be an enabler. That's my big takeaway from the book of Hosea. Because God says, literally, in Hosea, Hosea, go let your wife go do what she's going to do. And when she's useless and ragged looking and no one wants anything to do with her because she's nasty, she'll come back to you. You take her back then. That's what I'm doing with Israel. Sometimes you just have to let people go and do their thing. But the compassion in that is, and Jesus' point is, sometimes we have to go to the sinners and the tax collectors, just as the prophets went to Israel, and warn them of God's judgment and reach out to them, not as if to say, nana, nana, guess what's come to you, buddy? You're going to get yours someday. But rather to say, God wants us to reach out to him. And his chesed, his loving kindness, his steadfast love is always there. 
can just walk through the door. And the door is wide open. That's what needs to move us as a church. That's what needs to move us as Christians. Not the idea of I'm better than you or you're going to get yours. But to recognize that's what Jesus was all about. Secondly, we need to recognize that sometimes there are misfortunes that happen in people's lives. Sometimes they just made a mistake. Sometimes they brought it on themselves. Sometimes it's no big deal to us, but it's a big deal to them. And carrying that compassion of Christ just like he was at that wedding feast. Isn't really my purpose. Isn't really what I'm about, but I can help. So I'm going to help. And sometimes that compassion is realizing that someone is facing a major crisis in life. And we have the means and the ability to help. And we have that means and we have that ability. We walk over and we say, rise up. And we change a life simply because we can. And that's what God wants us to be. When people see that image of Christ in our lives, that's when they'll be as the others in that crowd, in that road, in the city of Nain, who started glorifying God and giving praise to Him. If you're here this morning and you want to be that image of Christ and want to have that level of compassion in your life and you need the prayers of the church to help you do that, whatever your needs, won't you come? Just together we stand and sing.